God in unexpected places. This is the Messy Spirituality Podcast. Here's Jason Elam. Mercy has opened my eyes. So come, let us lay our weapons down. And fear is the lie inside us, whispering words to take up swords. And as we let goodness guide us, leading us from our violent lords. You've just been listening to the music of Light and Shadow featuring singer-songwriter David Myers. David is a father of four. He's been married to his wife, Nicole, for 22 years. He's a touring musician turned pastor turned firefighter, and I'm excited to explore all of that with him today. Welcome to the Messy Spirituality Podcast, David Myers. Oh, man, this is awesome. Thanks for having me. I'm all giggly over here. (laughs) (laughs) Well, man, I'm really excited to speak with you. I came across your music uh, probably through your Facebook page, and I just love it. I'm so excited to explore that part of your life with you further. But let's start at the beginning a little bit. Uh, Tell us about your spiritual history. Were you raised in an atmosphere of faith? Yes, um, absolutely. My my folks, they're pastors um, now, and they have been my whole life. But most of that, they were uh, they toured around the country and ministered. At, I, I've been in hundreds, if not thousands, of churches, um, every denomination, you name it. And my folks would travel around, and they would they would sing and 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 bring a word. And this was a whole new thing back in the you know early '80s. You know, people weren't really doing that. And so we were homeschooled, and we would travel with them, and we would run their merch table and sell their cassette tapes and all that stuff. So I've been involved and surrounded by church and church folk and spirituality my entire life. It's definitely a huge foundation that I have. What was what was the stream of Christianity that you were raised in like? How would you describe that? Oh, man. Very charismatic, very, you know, Kenneth Copeland, Jesse Duplantis, kind of guys. You know what I mean? So kind of a word of faith? Very word of faith, very name it and claim it, very, very much that stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Tell us about the God you believed in during that season of your life. Well, I bought into it. And, you know, it's it's easy to look back and say, oh man, I'm so embarrassed by the things that I used to think and the things that I used to do, which, which I guess is a healthy response to a lot of that, you know? But at the same time, it kind of led me to who I am now. Like, had that not happened, I probably wouldn't be the person that I am today. And I feel like I've gotten better in things and smarter in things. So maybe some of that stuff was very necessary. But um, when I was growing up, it, it was it was very simplistic. This is what it says. So that's what I believe and that's what I do kind of thing. And it was... You know, there wasn't a whole lot of room to question things and to say, well, wait a minute, that that contradicts this over here or that doesn't make sense logically or that's not even scientific. <laughs> and there wasn't a whole lot of room to to question those things. And, and for all intents and purposes, I guess there's still not a whole lot of room for things like that. But it wasn't a bad thing. You know, I didn't grow up in, in any kind of abusive thing. Um, I was, though, terrified as a kid of the rapture. 
absolutely terrified. Like, don't be doing anything dumb when it comes. To, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the rapture doctrine and the circles I was in growing up was just traumatizing. I mean, yes. I remember hearing things like, well, if you go to the movies tonight, you better hope Jesus doesn't come back while you're there. Right. That's kind of the whole Joe Dirt thing. <laughs> right. Yes, exactly. Uh, so how did that affect you? I was scared a lot of of the Bible. It, it terrified me. You know, the book of Revelation, just I, I never touched it because it was like, oh, my God, you know, hell was, was terrifying. The rapture was terrifying. I, I just felt like there was always this fear, you know, and as I got older, I realized that kind of the, the message of Scripture is to be not afraid. And so if I'm always terrified of something impending or something that's going to happen or something that God's going to do, then why does it always tell us to have no fear, be not afraid, those kinds of things. And so it, it never really sat right with me. Hell never really sat right with me. Even as a kid, I just couldn't reconcile God being good and traveling with my folks and then telling people that God is good. You know, his essence is good and he's love and then have this impending fear on the tail end, you know, and, and that's always been kind of a frustration that I've had growing up as a kid. You know, how do I fix this? How do I reconcile it? So, yeah, it was crazy. <laughs> so was there a trigger that kind of led you to a different way of thinking about God? Was there one experience or one thing that you can say, this is when it changed for me? No, I don't, I don't think there's anything that I can put my finger on and say, this is, this was the catalyst, you know? I think it was a lot of different things. I think it was, I really believe that experience is key. We, we sound all big and bad and tough and we think we're smart until we experience something that just completely contradicts our belief system. And once it does, then you have to like, oh man, I got to rethink everything. So I think it, for me, it was just experience. Once I became a father, everything changed. Once I became, you know, once I was married, once I became married to Nicole, you know, everything changed. Once I, touring and became a pastor and firefighter, like every, all of that stuff just adds to the perspective, I think. And so I think that to say something with a, with a certain amount of certainty is a little bit uh, egotistical and, and arrogant because we've probably not experienced the flip side of whatever that is, you know, um, but for me, it was just living, living life and, and understanding that some things are contradictory. And how do we fix this now? How do we reconcile what I used to think with what I think now and everything in between? So how do your changing views of God inform how you see yourself and the whole human family? Does, does what you have come to believe about God today, again, holding certainty very loosely, does that change the way that you view yourself and your fellow humans. Yes, absolutely. So when I shifted, so a little bit of back backstory. When I was pastoring, we were, we were in the Quad Cities in Iowa, which was a very short period of time in my life. And it was one of the hardest periods of my life. And I was a jerk. I was an arrogant little bastard and <laughs> thought I knew it all and had it all together. And I really didn't know anything. But I actually, you know how they say like, you can't change someone's mind over, over the internet. Well, that's not true because mine was completely changed. Um, um, we had just got on Twitter. Okay. This was eight years ago or something like that. And I stumbled upon, uh, Evan Wickham and Evan Wickham tweeted something that Jonathan Martin said. And, uh, 
oh my gosh, I'm going to ruin the quote, something to the effect of Christ-likeness isn't forgiving after an adequate apology, but forgiving while you're still being crucified, right? And I, I remember sitting in a Walmart parking lot and I read that and it was like, I got punched in the gut and I was like, oh my God, that is incredible. That is beautiful. Holy moly. I need to rethink so much, you know? And then uh, just experiencing things and then seeing behind the curtain with all of these churches, you know, the inconsistencies and the, the abuse and the manipulation and the control, just things started popping. Things started making sense. And so I started to change a lot of what I thought about inclusivity and the goodness of God and God's, you know, incredible love and things like that, you know. And uh, it was a really beautiful season in my life. It was hard because people, you know, they don't, they don't care for change too much. You know, oh, David, you changed <laughs> kind of thing. But uh, yeah, it was, it was that thing right there that was kind of, I guess, a catalyst in a way that helped me to go down this new road of, of new thinkers and new people that I had never heard of that had a way different perspective. And it was just so unbelievably refreshing. Isn't it cool how you can hear a quote like that and then all of a sudden passages open up that you never noticed before where Jesus is going around forgiving people who never asked for it. I mean, that's just a mind-blowing experience once you can see it. Right. And that's the thing too. It's like once you experience something different, it, it changes the perspective of something you had previous, you know, like you said, a whole new light was shown and it was like, oh my God, I've never seen it like this before. And it was just this incredible, exciting thing. And, you know, I started eating up um, any book I could get my hands on any person who was like, you need to check out this person or read this person, you know? Yeah. It was a really cool season in my life. And I'm still that way. You know, I'm still that way as, as give me a book, give me a podcast, give me somebody, you know, somebody that's going to challenge my thinking because we've not figured this out. Nobody has, you know, we've been arguing this for thousands of years and, and, and this guy figured it out. No, come on. Let's, <laughs> let's add a little humility to our conversations and excuse the ego and the, and the hubris, you know, who are some of the voices, the authors that have been impactful to you? So the first one that was, that was really great for me and bad for others. So my wife, she worked for the airlines at the time and she found in one of the seat backs on the plane, Velvet Elvis by Rob Bell. Rob Bell. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I had heard a lot about this guy, Rob Bell. Oh my God, he's a heretic. Oh my God, he's, he's this, he's that, he's horrible. He's, he's all the things, you know, and nobody had ever read him. You know, they just heard about him. And, and that's, that was my thinking like, oh, this guy's bad, you know? So I opened Velvet Elvis and I'm like, all right, you know, I've heard a lot about this guy. He's a clown. He's, he's a heretic. He's this and that. But I'm going to see for myself. So I read the first chapter and, I, and, and I'm, and I'm kind of reading it like guarded, you know, like, all right, let's see what this guy has to say. So I read the first chapter and I'm like, okay, that wasn't too bad. <laughs> but the second chapter is going to be horrible. I, you know, I can see it now. And so I read the second chapter and I'm like, all right, that I was actually pretty good. All right, let's go to the third chapter. I read the whole thing and I was like, oh my gosh, that was actually really beautiful. You know, like, I don't understand the complaint. And um, so, yeah, from there, I just went crazy, jumped off the, you know, the diving board into the deep end and, and just went nuts, you know. So, so, you know, guys like Rob Bell, guys like Greg Boyd, 
and even now, you know, Jonathan Martin and, and Brian Zahn. And I always had a, a thing with, when I was growing up in, in our church, we, we did have women pastors, which was awesome. So I did learn a lot from women pastors. So learning from women wasn't a new thing for me, but I still, you know, was diving into Rachel Held Evans and Sarah Bessie's and people like that, you know, people that were just so matter of fact, but so sweet with it too. And, and so knowledgeable, but yet in your face. And, and it was just so cool, you know, just the, the, the differences in the voices, but, but, but the consistency too of this whole new way of thinking that was just so beautiful to me. It was awesome. Yeah. I, I'm so grateful for Rob Bell for all of his books, really. He took so many bullets for so many of us so that we could just, I mean, he was the gateway for so many people to just understand, even if you didn't agree with him, just to understand it was okay to ask questions that nobody was asking. Right, right. Which was a whole new thing. Like I said, you know, you weren't, we weren't given that platform to, to question and to say, well, I don't, what do I think about this? Or this doesn't make sense. You know, explain this to me. No, no, no. It's the word of God. You know, take it, you know, in its most literal, you know, translation or whatever. How much trepidation was there for you in moving towards uncertainty to giving yourself permission to ask those kind of questions? I would think in a word of faith environment, that would be really difficult because your whole faith is built around knowing what you know, right? Yes. I think for me, it was it was the most refreshing thing I'd ever done. It was like jumping in a swimming pool and it was it was something that was needed for me. You know, it, it wasn't scary at all. It was it was something like I, I know that there's got to be more to this. Probably one of the biggest things that changed everything for me was when my father died. He died of uh, of cancer. And I remember after he died, um, a lot of people in my circle, a lot of people that I know and love even to this day, they, they told me, oh, he died because you didn't have enough faith. Oh, my goodness. Or he didn't have enough faith. That's brutal. Yeah. And I was like, isn't it? Right. But we're so literal in our understanding. And when we, when we do that, we tend to abuse people in, in other ways. Now, they didn't mean to sound so <laughs> unbelievably abusive, but they were. This is your fault. This is your fault that he's dead. You didn't pray enough. You didn't believe enough. You didn't do this enough, you know? And that killed me. And I carried that guilt for a, a while until I started saying, no, there's gotta be more to this. If this is it, then I want nothing to do with it. This is complete garbage. But I knew that there had to be more. And so who are these people that are tapping into these other avenues, these other trains of thought, these, these other perspectives that, that I'm just missing or I was never taught, you know? So yeah, there's, like I said, experience is king. And I think once we experience something different that we never have, it opens up all kinds of possibilities. Are there so, any lingering effects from the word of faith, that mindset of, you know, people die because they don't believe enough in their healing or even the the rapture stuff? I know that for me, you know, right now during the season in which you and I are recording this interview, there are National Guard troops marching down city streets and it's all sounding very left behind. Do, do you deal with any of that, you know, flashbacks to what you used to believe? Okay, so... The other night, what was the president walked out and 
he, what did he do? He, peaceful protesters, they're literally sitting there. And he tear gassed them and brought in the, the police and just ran them out and then did that photo op with the Bible in front of the church. And, and I literally was sitting there and I, I, I'm not shocked by a whole lot of things, <laughs> you know, but I was sitting there and I was like, oh my gosh, this is, this is terrible. This is horrible. And then I was flashing back to like Carpathia of the Left Behind books. Like I was a big fan of And I was like, oh my goodness. And my jaw just hit the ground. Like, okay, people have to say something about this. This was one of the most craziest, most absurd things I've ever seen before in my life, in my lifetime. I just could not believe it. And it brought back all of that nonsensical, you know, left behind theology and all of that fear of, oh my gosh. And then Chris Green, he, uh, he went wild on Twitter about, hey, I hope you, I hope you guys realize what we just witnessed kind of thing. And I was, oh my God, it was crazy. And so watching that, I told my wife, I was like, baby, I don't think I've ever in my life ever been this troubled. Now, now what do we do kind of thing? And it was just, yeah, it was just the weirdest thing. Uh, did you see that? Did you, did you see it on TV? Yeah, I did. It broke my heart and, and it made me angry too, you know, but I did have all of those old repressed, you know, I mean, we used to do rapture drills in the church that I grew right. up in. So <laughs> that's how steeped I was in this. And it just immediately came cr- crashing back down on me. It was like, well, what if they were right? You know, <laughs> I'm so grateful that that's not who I think God is anymore. Sure. Oh my God. Absolutely. But a part of me was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> It's happening, you know. But you're right. No matter where where you end up on the uh, eschatology discussion, the question of what do we do now is very present with the church right now. Have you come to any conclusions on that in the days since you watched that happen? So that evening, maybe it was the, the night after, I don't remember. So much has happened. <laughs> well, this month is uh, just three days old and it already feels like, you know, at least 30. So, yeah, no, we, we called the kids in and I've got an 18 year old uh, boy. I've got a 15 year old girl, and a, a 12 year old girl and a 10 year old girl. So I've got my hands full, but we called the kid in and, and or the kids in and, and my son, he's about to go to basic training. He enlisted in the army national guard, which that's another thing I've, received so many emails and messages like, how could you let your son do that kind of thing? And I'm like, oh my gosh. Anyways, so we brought him into the room and we're just talking with him like, hey guys, this is what we're up against. You know, we're living in some of the most unprecedented times, some of the most scary, volatile, like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen kind of stuff with global pandemics and militarized police just coming through and protests and riots and all of this scary imagery, you know? And it's like, okay, what do we do? And we just sat him down and we said, well, here's, here's what we can do. And uh, we just kind of went back to the fundamentals, kind of went back to the basics of, you know, light up the darkness kind of thing. Wherever you see injustice, it's time to stand up and to call it out. And you're going to lose your good name. You're going to lose your reputation. You know, Nicole and I were kicked out of our last church because we became huge LGBTQ uh, advocates. And so we told the kids, what are you willing to lose in order to stand up for what's right? And that's the other thing that kills me, you know, growing up in the, in the culture that I did, and I'm not going to like point fingers and say it was my whoever, but just the culture, right? The people, you know, we were taught like, 
when Clinton was in office, for example, you know, he's getting extracurricular activities in the Oval Office, things like that. And so the culture that I grew up in, they point to that and they say, that is wrong. That is immoral. And, and they're right, right? He's married. And now he's compromised as the president of the United States, blah, 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 blah. They point to that and they say, that's wrong. And I say, okay. And I believe them, right? But then we fast forward to 2020 and now their guy's in power and now nothing matters. You know, I don't hate Donald Trump. I actually pity the man, but uh, nothing matters anymore. Words don't matter anymore. You know, we have a thrice married philandering pornographer in the Oval Office. Oh, no, 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 it's fine. You know, we just want our judges in there and that's what he's gonna do kind of thing, you know? And so we justify ourselves to, to prop up our ideological ideas or our political partisan politics. You know, it's, it's so crazy. But that's what I told my kids. I said, it's time to remain consistent. It's time to call out injustice and to stand up against it. Um, and it's scary and it's going to be hard and you're going to lose relationships and you're going to lose friends. But doing what's right is what matters most. You know, standing up and saying Black Lives Matters because for so many decades, you know, we pimped out our Bibles to say otherwise, you know, um, and things like that. Not necessarily just to be a, a social justice warrior, but to stand up for base, our basic mandate as Christ followers, you know, the orphan, the widow, the immigrant, the prisoner, the not good enough, the never haves, the B team, the JV, those people, them. And uh, so we had a really, really good talk. And I ended it with, and whatever we come up against, whatever we face, have no fear. Be not afraid. I really don't care what my children believe. And I've, I've actually never taught them, this is what you need to believe. You need to believe the Bible. I've never said that. But I have said, you know, at, at the end of the day, if, we, if all we did is raise decent human beings, then we did our job. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was a really good conversation. They, were, they asked questions and they were open and honest. And it was really, really neat because they get it. And it sucks that they can't be kids anymore. They have to deal with stuff like this. But you know, this is the world we gave them, you know? That's right. All right. So a lot of people who grew up uh, in the atmosphere you did, getting kind of moved from one church to another on the, I guess it sounds like a traveling evangelism kind of circuit in, in various churches, they, they see so much of the dark side of ministry that they would want nothing to do with it when they got older. Did you always feel a calling to ministry yourself? Yes, I think I, I did. And I think in, in a lot of other ways, I think I still do. First of all, it was, it was all I knew because that's the family I grew up in. That's the culture I was raised in. Kind of the family business. Yeah. So I felt kind of an obligation to kind of keep it going. But at the same time, like there's so much and there's, and there's so much of me that would say, you know what, I'd rather not do any of this anymore. But I'm just, I'm, and every time I get to that point, I'm always drawn back to the story, to the narrative of, of the life of Christ. You know, it's just, it's so fascinating to me. I, I, I can't escape it. I can't shake it. I can't get rid of it. I've tried, <laughs> but his story is just so all encompassing and just so unbelievably fascinating to me. So, yeah. So, you know, growing up, I, we started the worship team at our church and uh, that's where the band our first band spawned from. 
and then we toured off that band for 15 years or so. But yeah, I've always I've always been involved in churches, you know, volunteering. I've started churches. I've planted churches. I've pastored at churches. I've I've seen behind the curtain of a lot of churches, a lot of denominations. Which, if if you want to be honest, you know, you can get real cynical real quick, <laughs> seeing behind the curtain, you know. But it's always been something that I've been drawn to. I love a good conversation about philosophy and theology and things like that. And I guess in a way, in some ways, it's one of the things I do well, I think. But yeah, I think I've always been drawn to it and, and had this this calling, whether it was pastoring in Iowa or being in a band or things like that. Do you think of your season as a local church pastor as a positive or a negative experience for you? Both. Absolutely both. And I think that's that. that's how it always is, you know, in any job, you know, like I can think of uh, pros and cons of why I'm a firefighter. I love what I do, but I hate what I see most of the time kind of thing, you know? And I think that that can be the same as a pastor. You know, you you want to do good in the world. You want to serve people, but at the same time, you don't want to be <laughs> taken advantage of all the time and overworked and overstressed and for what? At the end of the day, for what? And so one of the big things that I, I told the folks in Iowa was, I will never sacrifice my family on the altar of ministry. And uh, it started to get to that point. I was working insane hours, like 100 hours a week. And it was just too much. But I loved the people. I loved the experience. And for all the negative things that happened, like, I have no regrets. It made me who I am today. And it, and it you know, we, we lived in, we live in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and we moved our family across the country to the Midwest. So we grew a lot as a family too, you know? So that was good. Lots of pros, lots of cons, but I have no regrets. I met some of the most beautiful people out there and we're still friends to this day. So I think everything is just all part of the experience, you know? (laughs) Well, I think that's such a refreshing and healthy mindset to come away from your experiences with is to say, you know what? I don't have any regrets. It contributed to who I am today and I learned something from it. Therefore, even the difficult stuff may have been worth it. Sure. That's incredible. Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, you know, I, I, I kind of went there. Um, I mean, and there's a, there's a reason why we, we moved across the country, but I won't bore you with that, with those gory details, but I kind of went there kind of naive, kind of stupid, but kind of like, Oh, I've got, so much figured out in life and I just learned so much. I got my butt kicked out there and it was needed. It was very necessary. So yeah, like I said, I learned so much. We grew as a family. I, I feel like we're so much better now than, than we were then had we not gone, you know, that kind of thing. Tell us about your transition from pastor to firefighter. How did that happen? (laughs) So I was in this band called Old Man Shattered and we were we were touring for 15 years or so. We, we would play with all the bands and go on tour and play all the festivals and do all the stuff. We were never like huge, but we were moderately successful. We were on the radio all the time and it was, it was cool. We were able to do it for 15 years. So we were, we were blessed to do that. But the whole time, my brother-in-law who worked in the fire department here, he's like, hey, you should, uh, you should join the fire department. It's gonna be great. And I'm like, no, I'm in a band, dude. We're going to make it, you know? (laughs) And he's like, I know, but you can do both kind of thing. So I put it off and I put it off and I put it off. Well, finally, 
um, once you have four kids and a wife and a mortgage, like touring doesn't lend itself to a family. So I was like, okay, maybe I should settle down and do, do something more substantial. So I tried out for the fire department and I got in and I went through the whole academy about two weeks before graduation that we had tested out and everything. And I don't know if you know anything about Albuquerque's fire department, but it's one of the most rigorous for how difficult it is. It's, it's brutal. It's, it's paramilitary. It's 20 weeks. It's the worst experience of your life. Like I could, I could tell you stories of the Academy, but you just would never understand until you're there experiencing it. It was God awful. It was academic and physical and everything. It was, it was bad. (laughs) But I did it, right? And some city doctor arbitrarily misdiagnosed me and said I had a knee problem that I just didn't have. And because of his diagnosis, I lost my job. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, my God, what do I do now? I gave up the band for this. I gave everything to this. And I did well. Like, there wasn't a single test that I failed. It wasn't like, well, guys, I tried and I just couldn't do it. It was like, no, I did it. And it was taken from me, right? And I worked so hard and we're done. We've tested out. We have two weeks left. And now all the instructors at the academy, they're all like buddy-buddy with you because of everything you've gone through kind of thing. Like, you did it kind of thing. And now the last two weeks are kind of just a formality. Well, I lost my job. And uh, now what do I do? Oh, my gosh, this is going to be brutal. You know, what do I tell, you know, my family? You know, I'm a failure, that kind of thing. So I basically reverted back to what I'm good at. And that was church stuff. And so I put a resume together and I threw it out there. And this church from Bettendorf, Iowa, gave me a call and I, and I <laughs> took it. And a few months later, we were moving out there. Um, once we had our season in Iowa, we moved back. And my wife was still so salty about the whole thing and towards the fire department and stuff. And I told her, I said, baby, I said, I don't know if this is my ego talking or, or my pride or whatever, but I did that and it was taken from me. I think I need to do it again just so, like, I don't know if I'm going to be a career firefighter the rest of my life, but I, I just need to know and say that I did that. So I went back through it uh, again from scratch, you know, and it was just as hard, just as difficult, man. Walking across that stage on graduation day was one of the most incredible feelings I've ever experienced in my life. So yeah, there's a whole history there. And it's, uh, it was difficult for sure. But that transition, you know, people say, oh, you, you know, you're not a pastor anymore, you're a firefighter. But in, in a lot of ways, there's, there's kind of not a difference. You know, you're always showing up to people on, on their worst days. And so now how do you mitigate that? Absolutely. My mom's house burned down a few years ago. And I I just have a feeling that would have been a very different experience for her had you been on the crew that answered that call. Uh, You just have this presence of grace about you. Everything I've ever seen you post online has been that way. And you just, there's just this presence, the sweetness of Jesus in everything that you share. And so I would imagine that firefighting for you is a lot like pastoring. Oh man, that's awesome. Thank you for saying that. Um, can I tell you a quick little story? Of course. So now I can tell you, I can regale you with firefighter stories, you know, until we're blue in the face, but this was my most favorite. I've been in six years, so I'm still kind of new, but this was my most favorite call. And, you know, we go on everything. You call 911 and we show up, whether it's a structure fire, somebody had a heart attack, somebody had an overdose, you know, a car crash, whatever. You call 911, we're going to show up. Well, anyways, we're 
we're at the station and we're kind of prepping for dinner and we get a knock at the door. And uh, so we go and we open the door and it's this older couple and they walk in and they see that we're cooking and they're like, oh my goodness, we're so sorry. We didn't mean to interrupt you. Um, we just have a, a favor to ask. And we're like, of course, you know, what do you need? And they were like, very, no, 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 no. We didn't know you were cooking. We'll leave. And finally we got it out of them. No, no, no. What do you need? That's what we're here for. And they said, well, it's not an emergency, but we do have a friend who's dying in, in hospice and she just needs to be moved from her bed in her bedroom to her hospice bed in the living room. And we all kind of looked at each other like, that's it? And they said, yeah, that, that's it. That's all we need. So they leave and the captain of the station, he looks around and he sends the rescue. Now our rescue is staffed with two firefighters. So they sends the rescue, you know, he thinks he can, they can handle it kind of thing. So they leave. And once they leave, he looks at me and I look at him and he says, we should all go, huh? And I looked at the captain and I said, I think we should. And where I'm stationed is, a, it's called a multiple. We have a rescue, we have a ladder truck and we have an engine, right? So there's a lot of guys staffed at this one station so uh we follow the rescue to this house and so you you have like 12 men jumping off these trucks pulling up and and the owner of the house comes out and he sees all the commotion and he sees all the trucks and he sees all the guys and he starts weeping just uncontrollably weeping and i was the first person into the house okay and i walked past that gentleman and i put my hand on his shoulder and i said Where, where's she at kind of thing Oh, oh, just walk in and, and, you know, hang her right down the hallway and she's right there kind of thing. And uh, Jason, I'm not kidding, man. When I walked through that door of that house, I felt this tangible uh, presence. I walked in and it was just this peace and it hit me like a ton of bricks. I was like, oh my goodness, it was beautiful. And, uh, you know, firefighters are a bunch of jerks, you know, a bunch of alpha males, you know, loud. And <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> and we showed up and it was business. These guys were serious. They were they were so good with them. And, and, and it was just amazing to see. And so we were all walking through this house and we find the lady and she's in her bedroom. And she was, she did not look like she was about to die. She was beautiful. She had this long silver hair and she was so happy and she had the biggest smile on her face and her the sweetest disposition and just it was incredible so we walked in and we kind of surrounded her and, and there's family friends and family at the house and they're watching us and kind of like uh what like a like a holy hush kind of thing like this very sacred moment and uh Everybody felt it, you know, and so they're all kind of watching us. And so we explained to her, okay, man, this is what we're going to do. We're going to put you on this kind of blanket kind of thing. And we're going to carry you this way. And we're going to carry you through the, through the hallway. And then we're going to put you on your bed like this. And just so you know what we're about to do. And so we did it. We picked her up and we put her on the thing and we carried her to her hospice bed. And again, people were like, what are these guys doing? Who are these guys? You know what I mean? Like we weren't saving the day. We weren't putting a fire out. We were carrying a lady, you know, but it was still this beautiful, holy moment to this family and these friends, you know? So we put her on her bed and then we're in her living room and okay, well, is that it? Do you guys need some like furniture move? We have all these guys here and all this manpower, you know? Um, what else do you need? They said, that's it. That's all we need. That's it. And so we said, okay, well, if that's it, then we'll be on our way and we'll get out of your hair and we kind of start filing out one by one. 
And the wife of the gentleman that walked out of the house to begin with and saw all the trucks, she grabs every single one of us, hugs us like we were her own, and gives us a a kiss on the cheek. And she whispers in all of our ears, she says, you don't know what you just did, right? And now I was the first person in the house, and now I'm the last person out. And I'm at the lady's feet. So I start to walk out. And and what do you say? You know, have a good one. (laughs) Take it easy. You know, something so stupid. And so I didn't want to ruin the moment. So I just looked at her and she looked at me and I just kind of gave her a nod. And she gave me just the sweetest smile. And as as I'm walking out, she grabs my hand and she pulls me in and she says, I just want you to know that this was one of the best days of my entire life. And I lost it. I lost it. And uh, now I cry for everything. I cry at commercials. I cry when I watch TV. The kids, I, I just cry. I'm a crier, but I lost it. And now I'm with the guys. So I'm, now I'm trying to like be tough and like not show. And then the other lady grabs me and she brings me and she hugs me close. She kisses me on the cheek and she says, you don't know what you just did. And I'm like, oh my God. So we walk out of the house. I jump back in the truck. And now I'm like, kind of like ridiculously looking out of the window. So they don't see my face, you know? And, uh, the cap, or yeah, the captain looks at me. He's like, Myers, Myers, what, Cap, what? And finally, I look at him, and he looks at me, and we're both, you know, snot running down our face, tears, you know, our shirts are soaked. Like, you too, huh, man? You know, it was, yeah, it was incredible, and I'll never forget that moment. And so we get back to the house. You know, we finish cooking, and like I said, a bunch of, you know, jerk alpha male loud obnoxious firefighters are completely silent for dinner nobody said a word and it was just it was absolutely beautiful and so i think like everything that i've experienced you know has led me to things like that be to be a part of something like that you know and so my job now i i've i love going to work i love what i do for a living it is brutal and it's sad. You know, we show up on everybody's worst days. You know, we see the end of buildings and we see the end of somebody's life, you know. But I love what I do. And man, I could tell you some amazing stories of saves that we did. And, and just it's just such a rewarding job. Because first of all, you never know what you're going to get. You wake up and, all right, let's see what the day has for us. And You know, some of the stuff are silly and, you know, you laugh and some of the stuff is so brutally difficult to see, you know, because we see things that people shouldn't see and we see it every day. But with that said, you know, my my upbringing and my season as a pastor and my season as a touring musician, I really believe has led me up to what I'm doing now. And I really have a a lot of sense of pride in, in my job and and how I conduct myself on scene with people. And like you said, like I, I, I try to go out of my way to, well, first of all, you know, we have a, a reputation as the fire department. You know, people love us. We drive down the street and it's like a parade. Hey, there's the fire department, you know, and it's so cool. And so I want to try to keep that tradition, whether it's just on my truck or in my fire station or whatever, but I think there's some pride that comes along with that in the job that we do. And it's just, it's incredible. It's the most rewarding thing I've ever done in my life. That's beautiful. Tell us about Of Light and Shadow. How did that come together? Oh, man. So once we quit Old Man Shattered and, you know, moved on to bigger and better things and more mature things as an adult, 
I've always still been a songwriter. And so if there's anything that I think that I do well, I think I'm a good songwriter. I think I write good lyrics. So I had all these songs and then I had all these friends and none of us were really doing anything. So I said, what if we just started like a little local super group? Now I'm probably the worst, least talented person in this group. I found some people that are just, they're like virtuosos, you know, they're just so incredibly gifted and talented. And I said, hey, I've got some songs. I want to put together a little project. We'll start a little band. We're not going to play any live shows because nobody has time for that, but we'll just keep putting out music. And so every single person I hit up was like, heck yeah, heck yeah, let's do it. Yeah, absolutely. So the funny thing about that is is I had all these songs written, kind of did like a little rough recording of them all and then sent them to everybody. And I said, okay, here's the deal. I don't care what you do because I trust you all. So write some parts, figure out what, what your little signature on this song will be. And then we'll come together in the studio and we'll just record. We didn't rehearse one time for this record, not once. And I, and I think that there's maybe three times on the record where we're like, nope, do it again. The rest of it is one take, no rehearsal, and it just worked. It just fit. And I'm, and I'm sitting back as we're mixing and I'm like, how did we pull this off? <laughs> um, and I'm so proud of it because it's so good. I think it's good. I'm, I'm proud of it. I, it's, you know, all my songs are like my little babies and I'm so proud of my kids, you know, kind of thing. I think that when you surround yourself with people who are better than you, you'll be surprised at the outcome. And I think that works in music. I think that works in business. I think that works in firefighting. You know, I think that just works in the real world. And so it just fit, it just magically fit. And uh, yeah, everything came together and oh my gosh, yeah. So we've got some really good feedback from it so far too. Well, I really love it. The songs on The Art of Shifting Seas are just beautiful and there's so much richness and depth to the lyrics. I wanted to ask you, what is your songwriting process? What is that like for you? Oh my gosh, so on this project, you know, the theme is love whether that's an abstract idea or a more pragmatic kind of thing. You know, some some of the songs are can bend towards a spiritual side, but some of them I just wrote to my wife. But my process with writing is I'll come up with an idea, and some songs come in five minutes, some come in five years. So, for instance, like the song Twilight, um, I wrote that song about 10 years ago. No, I'm sorry, about 12 years ago when my wife and I were going through a really brutal divorce and I wrote this song and it was, it was, it just came out. It just was one of those things, you know, it came out in like minutes and I wrote it down and then we played it for years as the band. And I, I've never, it's never really sat well with me as far as me singing it. I never liked the way I sang it, which is weird because I wrote it. So with this project, I was like, I want to bring this back and I want to do it justice. I want to do it the way I've always felt like it needed to be done. So, you know, we, I got my friend Ariana and she sang it and I'm like, there it is. That's exactly what I've been dreaming about this song could be. And I think it's one of my favorite on the, on the record. Definitely one of the most powerful. Our producer, he sent it to some guy at Sony and I don't care anymore. Like, oh good. Yeah. Record labels. Who cares? I'm not really into that anymore. I'm not trying to get big again, but he sent back an email with two words. And uh, they had, you know, a bunch of cursing in it. So <laughs> he loved it. He thought it was incredible. Awesome. Yeah. 
So yeah, um, the process is, is all, all kinds of different. Um, like I said, sometimes it takes a little more massaging. Sometimes it just flows and you're like, boom, that was it. And it just clicks and it works and you don't really ever need to revisit it. But so are you working on a new project? Well, I think we're just going to keep putting out music. So I already have the next single um, ready to go. And we're talking about uh, recording it here in the next couple months. So yeah, we'll, we'll be, we'll, we'll keep up, pumping out music. So Awesome. Well, David, I have really appreciated your time today. And I love the heart behind this music. And I hope that folks will go out and listen to it. Uh, tell our friends listening today, what's the best way to get a hold of the music and engage with you and your work online? Oh my gosh. Um, well, it's, it's, it's on every single music platform, Spotify, Apple Music. So wherever you subscribe to music, you can find us of Light and Shadow. And uh, the record's called The Art of Shifting Seas. And uh, yeah, I, I, I also run a group called, it's a website called A More Beautiful Gospel, which I stole the title from Brad Jerzak. Sounded familiar. <laughs> he let me. I was like, I love that title. I want to steal it. So basically... It's a website with just short videos of ideas and, and conversation starters. And it's called amorebeautifulgospel.com. And that's one of the one of the things that I do as well, um, just for fun, another creative outlet for me to, you know, not focus on my work all the time. So I do the music thing and I do this. Thing. I do a lot of things and I don't know if I do any of them all that well, but they're fun. Um, but so you can connect, you know, through that. Uh, a more beautiful gospel.com or of light and shadow, or you can just friend me on Facebook. <laughs> I'm always up for a good talk. So friends, we will link to David's website, his music and social media in the show notes for this episode. Please be sure to check out his latest project of light and shadow, the art of shifting seas, wherever you buy music, you're going to love it. As we leave you today, here's a taste of one of my favorite songs from that project. It's called wide awake. David Myers, thanks so much for joining me today, brother. Thank you, sir. Thanks for having me. And uh, we'll hang out online. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode.